Hey there, Realty Speak listeners. This episode was recorded July 16, 2019. And on July 23, 2019, I had a follow-up call with guest Allison Berman from Greystone. On that call, Allison informed me that the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, made some major changes to the final rules of the EB-5 program. I put those changes in the show notes and added the follow-up call to the end of the episode. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. On Realty Speak today, I am thrilled to be sitting with attorney Min Chan, Managing Director of the Chan Law Firm, and Allison Berman, Managing Director and General Counsel of Greystone EB-5, both from New York City yet internationally connected. They're going to tell us all about EB-5, an immigrant investor visa program that was created by the Immigration Act of 1990, which provides a method for eligible immigrant investors to become lawful permanent residents of the United States. Thank you both for joining us today on Realty Speak. Great to be here, Bill. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be here today with Min to talk about EB-5. EB-5 has been around for 29 years, and we'll get to the nuts and bolts of that shortly, but Allison, Min, First, share with our listeners a little bit about yourselves, your organizations, how you came to know each other, and why is EB-5 in your toolbox? I'm a real estate attorney. I've been working with Greystone for about 13 years now, and I've been practicing law for close to 30. Greystone is a private equity company based in New York that is involved in all aspects of real estate. We're involved in lending, we're involved in development, and we're involved in advisory work. We started in EB-5 in about 2015 after we looked at the market and saw that EB-5 was frankly all about everything we did. It's about lending money to a good real estate project and making sure that the project at the end of the day pays off. Min and I have been working together in EB-5 for probably about two years now, maybe a little over Min. Been working with Min in her capacity as an immigration counsel with the Chan Law Firm. My name is Min, and I've been an attorney for about 22 years. And for the past seven years, I've been focused primarily on EB-5, representing developers in terms of the EB-5 capital raise, and also representing investors who wish to take advantage of the program. Allison and I have met a at one of the EB-5 conferences in New York when Greystone first got into the EB-5 programs. And we both have been speakers at various EB-5 conferences. And Allison has been a great resource to me as well in terms of uh, the various EB-5 projects that Greystone has been sponsoring. So let's get started. As I mentioned before, EB-5 has been around 29 years or so. And why was it established in the first place? Why did it become part of the Immigration Act of 1990? The EB-5 program was created to stimulate the U.S. economy with foreign funding. So the legislative intent of the program was so that we leverage foreign funding to stimulate certain area in the U.S. that requires development. That law has been in the book for many, many years, but it wasn't until, I would say, about 2008 when the real estate market in the U.S., was going down that the EB-5 program was leveraged to raise money for the real estate industry. One of the important things, Min, you mentioned that people might not know about EB-5 is in addition to being created to bring foreign investment and to stimulate the economy, it was really also meant to create jobs in the United States. So EB actually stands for employment-based. So it's one of the immigration programs that are meant to stimulate jobs. Going back to 2008, and you mentioned 2008, and of course, that's when we experienced the financial crisis. And I guess a lot of uh, commercial lenders exited the space in terms of lending. So this EB-5 helped kind of fill that void? That's correct, Bill. And as Allison mentioned, one of the main components of the EB-5 program is that for each one investors that invest in the EB-5 program, 10 jobs must be created. 
So as a result, this was a very specific and very proactive way to create to stimulate the U.S. economy. And in 2008, when the real estate industry obviously was having problem credit, EB-5 came to replace that. So there was a huge efforts on the part of various developers to educate foreign investors about the EB-5 program. Prior to that, the law was in the on the book, but very few investors knew about it or even knew how to. Go about getting an EB five project on their plate. The interesting fact about EB five is, although it was started in 1990, it was refined in 1993 to make it a little bit more user friendly. It was in 1993 when Congress passed the Immigrant Investor Pilot Program, which actually started EB five as we know it today. Um, a lot of people heard about the Regional Center Program, and that's actually part of the pilot program, not the beginning of EB five. And that, interestingly enough, is not a permanent program. It's subject to renewals every three years. And since 2015, since Greystone actually got into the business, it's just been on short-term renewal since Congress hasn't passed any new legislation. Is there any actual data about the popularity of the strategy now, as compared to say before? As Min mentioned, EB five became quite popular in two thousand and eight because it's very flexible and affordable for financing for developers. If people remember New York City and other parts of the country in two thousand and eight, if you looked around, there were a lot of construction projects that just completely stalled. Between two thousand and eight and two thousand and seventeen, twenty billion dollars has been raised in EB five. One hundred and seventy four thousand jobs. And there are currently today 880 regional centers, where in 2008, I may be wrong, but I think there was only about 300 regional centers at that time. That's correct. So 300 compared to how many? Today, there's over 850. And that's nationwide. And that's nationwide. When an investor, when a foreign investor brings capital into one of these programs, it's categorized as debt or equity. It really depends, and before we kind of go into the structure, I also want to mention that the EB five program is not meant only for the real estate industry. It's basically when investor invests into a business, and it could be real estate, it could be other forms of businesses. For example, EB five have been leveraged for franchising businesses. Typically, we've known EB five as financing real estate deals because real estate is real estate anywhere in the world. Investor can understand exactly where they're putting the money into. With respect, can you repeat your question again? Question was: Is it debt or equity? It really depends on the developer, the regional center, how they feel they should structure the deal in order to raise the amount of money required for that particular project. And it also depends a lot upon what the investors want at a particular time. As Min mentioned, there's no requirements in the legislation that EB five money come in as debt or equity. The way that it works is that an investor has to put either five hundred thousand or a million dollars into a job creating entity. With the regional center program, the regional center creates a fund. The investors buy interest in that fund, and then that fund will then contribute the money either through a loan or through the purchase of equity in the job creating entity. The job creating entity then use that money to create the jobs. And as Min had mentioned, it needs to be. Ten jobs per investor, but on average, I believe it's sixteen plus jobs per investor. So the job creating entity is what's driving either the business or the development of the real estate. That's exactly right. The job creating entity tends to be the developer or the owner of the franchises. The project, let's say in a real estate context, does it have to be a development, or can it be just the investment in an existing building that requires a little bit of rehabilitation? You know, a value add project. The main thing about EB five that we'll we'll keep going back to is it needs to create jobs. So for every investment by an investor, five hundred thousand in a TEA or a million dollars not in a TEA, you need to create ten jobs. So construction creates a lot of jobs. And again, that was a change through the regional center program that using a regional center you could have indirect. Induced or direct jobs, and the construction really creates indirect and induced jobs. Oh, okay. So because of the construction, you're creating those jobs. A lot of jobs. Actually, let's go back to the EB five program as exists. So for every EB five project, you're going to need to have three entities set up. One is 
in a regional center program, you have to have the regional center that's approved by the federal government. Number two, you're going to need to what's called uh, newly new commercial enterprise, which is what the fund that Alison was mentioning, creating that fund. And number three, you need the what's called the JC, the job creating entity. And that could be a developer who's doing the construction versus a business owner who's creating jobs. With respect to your question about value-added real estate property, it's difficult because to raise EB-5 funding requires a lot of initial upfront costs. So if you are a project and you're raising, let's say, $2 million, the cost of raising that $2 million via EB-5 may make it cost prohibitive because the legal documents, you're going to need to prepare your prior placement, you're going to need to create EB-5 uh, compliant business plan, you're going to need to do economic modeling. There's a lot of preparation work just like what we know as new market tax credit. For you to get funding through new market tax credit, there's a lot of preparation work. So for a value-added project that you're envisioning, it may not make sense. The way I typically tell my developers, if you're raising less than $20 million and you don't have your own regional center, it may not make sense. So it's a kind of a calculation that the developer would have to make and decide if EB-5 Although it's considered cheaper capital, if it makes sense in terms of your whole capital stack with respect to the cost of acquiring that funding. Let's say there was a $15 million project and somebody was not going to create their own regional center. What would be the average cost for that? Or is is that even something that you can estimate unless you actually see the project? A $15 million all-in project is not going to create enough jobs to do all of the construction through EB-5. So typically, EB-5 works best as mezzanine financing. Say you take a $100 million construction project, and you're going to get senior construction of, say, 50% of that. You're going to want to have equity in the project because the investors want to see that the developer has skin in the game. You know, there's been a lot of talk about difficulties that investors are having. So they are becoming a lot wiser about how they look at a project. So typically, if you had a $100 million project, you do about 50% senior financing, you would do about 25% equity, and you would do about 25% EB-5. EB-5 is a securities offering. You need to create a lot of documentation. And the costs on that are usually legal costs, about $100,000. So you're not really going to do a small project. Though I will say, because EB-5 has changed in the last few years, where the investment money flowing in has gotten a lot slower, just because certain markets like China and Vietnam and now India have retrogression and a slowdown, We do have our own region. Greystone does have its own regional centers. We have them in 17 states. And we are, in fact, starting to take on smaller projects and our own small projects because, frankly, we think that at the end of the day, they're safer for the investors. So the regional centers that you've created in the 70 different states under Greystone, are they specifically for use to develop capital for Greystone or are you also advising other developers? So we've had a bit of a change in our in our business model. When we first started, we were doing it for third-party developers. Our first project that we did up on 126th Street was a $25 million raise for a developer who was putting a new multifamily property up there. It was 233 market rate and 47 affordable units. And that was at that time we were able to go over it in China and basically two weekends get 50 investors. Now we're based, as I mentioned, we're focused on smaller projects. And because Greystone has its own development projects, we've really been focusing on our own projects. But that's not to say that if the right project comes along, we wouldn't do it for a third party. And you said it's a securities offering. Is it filed under Regulation D for the exemption or do you you have to fully file it with the Securities and Exchange Commission? Actually, we're filing an exemption, so you would need to get a securities attorney who's not only knowledgeable in securities law, but also in EB-5, because there are some specific requirements in EB-5 that a typical security might not be aware of. So what we typically advise developers to do is that if you're interested in EB-5, you would need to basically work with an EB-5 immigration attorney and a securities attorney to make sure you come up with the best offering documents that meet the securities law, but also immigration requirements so that your investors at the end of the investment time period can actually get their permanent legal resident status. And so those you have to have interplay between the various areas of law in order to make the project work. And those are typically Reg S and Reg D, Reg S being offshore. 
usually, as to Min's point, you work with an immigration council and a securities council. There are a few regional centers such as ourselves that went ahead and became broker dealers just to make sure that if we were going to be doing any offerings here in the States, that we would meet all their requirements. But they tend to be Reg S, which is all offshore. Yeah, and I was wondering about that if Reg D was offshore. But so Reg S covers offshore. All right, great. Well, it seems to me, based on what we've discussed so far, that the job creation is the central aspect of this. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that because it, it appears that unless that's the goal and that everyone's on the same page that that is the goal, it could end up not working. That's exactly right. A couple of points, and I like to talk about it because there's so much talk about EB-5 and people not liking it because it it brings foreign money into the country, but people are overlooking the fact that this is really meant to create jobs. And investors have to be very careful when they're picking a project, and this is where Min's advice and working with her clients really comes in, because that at the end of the day is the most important thing for an investor. They need to make sure that they're picking a project where the work can be completed, the developer has the ability to complete the project, the developer has all the money to complete the project, because if the developer doesn't get the money and doesn't do the work, no jobs are created. And at the end of the day, that's the goal for the investor, because if the jobs are not created, then they do not get their green cards. And how many green cards do they get? Each investor is entitled to get a green card for him or herself, his or her spouse, and then their children who are under 21 and living at home. So it can be, you know, an average people would think in China, it used to be about three visas per investment. But in other in India, I think it averages out maybe a little bit higher. And in other countries, depending upon how many children the investor has. And that's a very, very important question, because EB-5 is capped at 10,000 visas a year. So if each investor is taking average of three or four visas, that really limits the number of investments being made. And that's one of the ongoing arguments right now with EB-5 in Congress. In terms of maybe increasing that cap. It's increasing the cap or counting per family as one visa versus three visa if you have husband and wife and a child. That has been debated in Congress and among practitioner, but there's been uh, no resolution. And as Allison mentioned earlier, that this is a temporary legislation and it's been renewal. It's been renewal many times since 2015. And the next big change is we are here. It's going to come down the pipeline in the next couple of months or so. There's been, I believe, 14 extensions since 2015. Some of them have been a couple of days, and some of them have been six months, and they're all tied into the omnibus spending bill. The investors and all of us participants in EB-5 would really like to see Congress not count the derivatives towards the 10,000 cap. But as Min mentioned, each investor, no matter how many visas they take, would only count as one visa against the 10,000. Immigration is a big topic these days. And then how do you feel, uh, you know, Congress looks at something like this as, say, compared to other aspects of what we're seeing around immigration? Well, the EB-5 program is the only program that's self-funded, and it brings in a lot of money and job creation to the U.S. So there's very little, I would say, disadvantages of it. And also, most of these EB-5 investors that I work with, they're very productive. They came here for education. They own businesses. They're making great contribution to the country. From my standpoint, I think EB-5 is one of the best immigration program out there. There have been some bad projects, you know, that's in the news and people, you know, are worried. But if you look at the legislative intent of the EB-5 program is to really stimulate the U.S. economy and bring in immigrants who can, in fact, contribute. And Min, I think that's an amazing point. I'd like to repeat it. This program is completely self-funded. It takes no taxpayer money, but yet since 2008, I believe it's brought in $11.9 billion in taxes. Let's not overlook that. It's completely self-funded. And these investors, the minute they submit their petition, they're subject to withholding taxes within the United States. And then the minute they get their green cards, they're subject to U.S. taxes as well as tax on their worldwide holdings. That's very interesting because I was wondering about the tax impact on the foreign investor. 
it does bring a lot of benefits to the United States. When I think about the incentives for the different players in an EB-5 project, you know, I think about the the foreign citizen, that's the investor, the developer who's receiving the capital. And obviously, there's an incentive for both of them. There's an incentive for the investor's family. And then we also have economic incentives with job creation that could be a really positive impact on the local communities. With regard to the local communities, how does this play into or can it be partnered with other programs like Opportunity Zones, the New Market Tax Credits, and other programs out there like those? The EB-5 tends to be work in conjunction with other incentives. It's not a standalone program. And I've seen deals where literally there's like 15 different incentives and there's a lot of various capital structuring going on. So EB-5, in most instances, doesn't necessarily stand alone. The EB-5 program can be misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, so for the intent, it's very simple. You have an investor invest in a project or business, and you need to create 10 jobs. That's the requirement. But in real life, how it plays out and why some of the project gets bad rep is because people become very creative in terms of how they structure these deals. But I think when we look at the Greystone deal, the structuring is very simple. We should go back and talk about a little bit about the EB-5 compliant business plan. So before an investor can actually invest in a project, you want to make sure they have all the financial documents that the money is invested in somewhat um, financially sound project. In the past, um, people have gotten away with less. Um, But I think today in the market, you see a lot more quality projects where in the past, I have investors calling me and said, is there any quality project that I can invest in? And today, there's a lot of quality project that EB-5 investor can act, can actually review and decide which project is best for them. And Min, thank you for commenting on our projects. We do try to keep them quite simple, where we have a senior loan, we have equity, and then we have EB-5. Because for our projects, they're going to be built whether or not we raise the EB-5, which is very important for the investor because they want to make sure the project's going forward no matter what, jobs will be created. So we tend to use the EB-5 to take our equity out as opposed to a necessary part of the capital stack that we have to wait for. But I do want to make one comment because in EB-5, you are not allowed to guarantee to the investors that they're going to get their money back. That's actually a big no-no in EB-5. Congress decided that the money had to remain at risk. So while we do provide a repayment guarantee, it's a repayment guarantee just to the lender who then would have to distribute the money to the investors. So their money is still at risk and it it is in compliance with the terms of the program. The investor can lose 100% of their money. Absolutely. It is a real estate investment and it does come with risks. And as a matter of fact, at risk is one of the most important words in EB-5. If the project is not deemed to be at risk by USCIS, because USCIS reviews every project, you have to submit a business plan, you have to submit a subscription agreement, you have to submit what's called an exemplar. And if USCIS looks at it and they determine that the structure doesn't have that element of risk in it, they will reject the project and then all the investors will lose their chance to get their green cards. So I was talking a little bit before about the incentives for all the different players, parties to the project seems like this is a little more complicated than the more traditional capital stack, which is equity and lending. And then sometimes that equity is raised with a private placement. And that seems a lot simpler than this. Why would you do this? What's the benefit for for you as the developer? Yeah. So the cost of the capital is significantly less in EB-5 than it is to go one of those other routes. So you're absolutely right. A developer has to think carefully if they want to go down the road with EB-5 because they have to keep records for seven years plus until the investor gets their unconditional green card. They have to be able to show that the jobs were created. They have to have documents that USCIS may call to see. Um, So they do have to meet all those requirements. But the advantage to the developer is that they could get lower cost of capital. Traditionally, it was a quarter of a point to half a point a year, as opposed to more traditional mezzanine financing, which could be 8, 9, 10, 11, 12% and plus. Now the rates have climbed up a bit in EB-5. We tend to give more than half a point, up to two points on our projects. 
because there's more competition in EB-5 at this point, and the investors are becoming more sophisticated. This gives the developer less expensive capital, and they can take their equity then and go do another project. So a midstream traditional cost of capital could be in the, say, 9% range. And the cost of capital with EB-5 for the same amount could be 2%. Well, then, then there's some added cost. It depends upon if the developer owns the regional center or is using a third-party regional center. So EB-5 capital can, ten, can cost the, inve- um, the developer anywhere, I'd say, from 2% to 7 or 8%, whereas traditional MES would probably be 10% plus. So you could save 3%. You can save in terms of percentage, but you also have to figure out in terms of time, the time to raise the money. So even if you get all the legal and business documentation prepared, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to raise that amount of money. So if you're raising $10 million, you may end up only raising, let's say, $7 million. On EB-5. Exactly. You know, when you look at the interest rate that you're paying, you also have to count into the time it's going to take you to raise the money because you're going out to the market and actually doing a raise with your offering document. Now, do the regional centers, that they have a staff of people that continually maintain relationships with would-be investors from foreign countries? Yes, we do. Just a perfect example is two and a half years ago, I was in Singapore promoting one of our projects, and I met an investor who wasn't quite ready to invest at that time because her daughter was only 15 or 16, And then she called me about nine months ago and said, okay, my daughter's now 17. I'd like to get my investment going. What project do you have available for me? So she didn't invest in the project that I was promoting back in 2017, but she invested in the one that I had in 2019. So we do keep in touch with our investors. We also have an office in China. I travel a lot internationally to go over and meet new investors, but we always try to keep contact with them. Min, I don't know if you have different experiences with some of the other regional centers that you work with. I think a lot of regional center and other developer were leveraged brokers in the Pacific country that they're raising money for. So when China opened up to the EB-5 market, there are several immigration agents or brokers who actually refer um, investors to the regional center or to the developer. And did they receive a fee for that? They do. And that fee is negotiated depending on certain type of... But for the past, I would say for the past, since 2008, a lot of the developers who've never been to China, or regional center who've never been to China, they leverage migration agents, that's what they're called, to bring them investors. And sometimes, literally, you can write your project, the amount you, you want to raise, and these migration agents will literally just bring you the money. I got started in EB-5 because I have two developers who raised close to $50 million in EB-5. And then they came to me and said, what do I do? Like, what is my obligation? They, the project was funded. They wanted me to review the documents they were signed and see what their obligations were. And that's really how I got my first kind of deep dive into EB-5. So these migration agents basically educate, you know, they will look at a certain project and decide if this is a project they think they can market to their clientele. And because they're in the local jurisdiction, they have access to a lot of developer. Earlier, Allison mentioned that two trips in China, she raised enough money for the Harlem project. Typically, that's how it worked before the whole retrogression issue came about. Um, now, like Allison said, it's a much more challenging, but also because there have been a lot of investors in the program, the new investors are much more sophisticated and now they're doing their own research. Unlike in the past where they rely upon the, the immigration migration agents and just through effort to basically conduct their whole business negotiation through the agent. Now, a lot of investors who are investing are going directly either to the developer or the regional center and asking a lot of good questions. To um, Min's point, I just want to make sure that all the listeners are aware because things are never as simple as they sound. In addition to worrying about securities laws here in the United States, you also have to worry about the similar laws in the countries where you're raising money. So here in the U.S., there's lots of laws about finders and how you can pay them and when you can pay them. And there are similar laws in China, India, Vietnam that you you have to be aware of when you're working over there. So I just don't want anyone to think they're just going to go over there and start paying people for leads. Before you mentioned India and China, what are some of the countries that this is popular in, in addition to those two? 
I think South America, Brazil is one of the con- countries where a lot of investors, I see a lot of investors coming from. Europe, even Italy, France, I've been getting some inquiry there. It's typically where people have access to information. Taiwan is another one of those countries that I've seen a surge in terms of investor interest. It appears to be that if someone is interested in educating, like Allison travels a lot. So if her interest is say, I want to create a market in Brazil, she'll travel and educate her investors. It's a lot of education. And sometimes you might meet an investor a year ago, two years ago, then when they're ready, they'll call you. So I think if you want to get into the EB-5 kind of game, you need to start investing, educating yourself, and then start educating your investors, and then getting the right people locally to assist you. Otherwise, it's just not a fun process. And those people can also be wealth advisors in a lot of countries, because Although China had a very good network of migration agents and they were licensed to find investors, places like Brazil, they don't really have the same network. So you often work with high net worth advisors and attorneys who have access to those types of people. Another important thing to know about EB-5, because you asked what countries is it popular in, EB-5 will always look to the place of birth. So the UAE and Dubai, for instance, it's very popular there, but a lot of the people in Dubai who are investing in EB-5 are actually born in India, so they count against the Indian cap. India just recently hit retrogression, meaning that they're going to have a delay now in how long it takes to get your conditional green card. And I can't tell you how many stories I have of people who think, yeah, but I have a visa from Great Britain, so therefore I'm not considered to be Indian. But if you're born in India, then that's the country that they look to. It's your country of birth when deciding what the cap for your country is. So with regard to that cap, you had mentioned before there's a annual cap of 10,000 visas. Mm-hmm. Correct. But it's, bro- but it's not 10,000 overall. It's 10,000 broken up into different countries. Each country is capped at 7%. So each country is capped at 700 visas. The reason that China was able to use so many of them in the past is because the other countries were not using their cap. So each country is capped at 700, but to the extent that there's visas left over, China or whatever country has more investors can use those numbers. Who keeps track of all that? USCIS. Uh, And what does that stand for? United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. USCIS. Mm -hmm. All right, there we go. They're the Department of Homeland Security that actually monitors EB-5 and most of the visas, actually. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans. We cover so many topics on the show, and with almost 20 episodes, there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use. But sometimes you may need more than that. Therefore, I'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate. Every transaction is different, and so are the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on the execution, proper planning, with decades in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital, and appraisal. I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy to get the information you need to know when you need to know it. Now, the number, it's 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. How long does it take before the investor gets their green card? And how does that work? Do they get a visa first and then they come here and they have to apply for the green card or do they automatically get the green card? What's the process there? Once an investor decides on a project, they can file the form what's called I-526. That starts the process of getting them a visa. And currently, the processing time for I-526 is in excess of two years. So once that is adjudicated by USCIS, then the investor can get what's called EB-5 visa to come over. And then when they're here for two-year period, they'll be able to file what's called the I-829 to get the permanent green car, which is for 10-year period. We talked a lot about retrogression, which means that in China, the visa is not current. So if you file your EB-5 visa today, you might have to wait 10, 15 years before that becomes available. 
Because remember, every year it's only 10,000 visas globally. And if your country has used up the allocated 700 visa for your country, you just have to wait. One of the continents that we're looking into right now is Africa, where there has not been a lot of EB-5 investors coming from Africa. And we know that Africa is a growing continent. And there have been what we've been seeing is a huge amount of interest, but they need a lot of education at this point. So I was doing a little math there, and it sounds like you got to wait at least two years, but it could be longer if your country's in retrogression. That's right. And it's actually a little bit more than two years now because processing times used to be less than 24 months. They used to be 18 to 24 months. And then you could get your conditional green card, which is the first green card that Min was referring to. And you could come here at that point and you could work and travel. And then you would have to wait two years to file your A29, and that's when the conditions would be removed. And that really is USCIS checking to make sure all the jobs were created and everything was done properly. So it is in China now, that same process is going to take 16 years. And that's why the markets essentially dried up in China. So the best case scenario is that two years to get the visa, and then another two years to get the green card. Permanent green card. The permanent green card that they remove all the conditions. Correct. And then after you get that green card, if you want to, you can become a citizen? Yes. And how long? How, five can, years. Five years. Yeah, five years. Oh. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's important to understand why people apply for EB-5 visas. We haven't really talked about that. But the majority, and men, you know, maybe you have a different experience, but I mostly see that when people are applying for the EB-5 visa, they're really doing it for their children. They want them to come here. They want them to be educated here. We have a reputation for having the best schools in the world. And also, a lot of times when the kids come here and they go to college here, they're able to come on an education visa. They want to stay. So after they've gone through college, you're able to get one year, what's called OPT, and get a job and work. But after that, unless you have another way to stay here, you have to go back to your home country. H-1B used to be very popular in India for people to come here and work. Now that's gone a lot harder. I think for 60,000 spots last year, there were over 360,000 applications. But what's better about EB-5 than H-1B is in EB-5, you can live, work, travel anywhere in the country. You're not tied to the place where your project was created. Unlike H-1B, you're not tied to a particular job. You can live, you can have your project in Florida and live in San Diego. So it really is a lot more flexible. Because of the long delays, it's taking 16 years. Someone in China would have to apply when their child is two or three in order to get it for their benefit and be able to take them on their visa before they turn 21. So that's a reason why retrogress countries are um, really slowing down. Yeah, that's correct, Allison. In my experience, if it's parents investing, it's really for the kids' education. And in some instances, the parents will actually give the money to their children or child and have them invest in EB-5. A couple years ago, the statistic came out that about 80% of the EB-5 investors were in their 20s. Wow. In their 20s. Pretty astonishing. Yes. So they were the actual investors. Correct. Because the parents, because they're aged out, right? They're over 21. So they couldn't be under the parents' investment. So these kids, after they turn 21, will have to invest in a project on their own. And in that situation, most of the money typically comes from the parents in form of gift to the child. And then the child will invest in an EB-5 program. Now, if the child invests in an EB-5 program, could they then get the green card for their parents? No. No. So it only goes in one direction. It's only spouses and underage children. But we have investors in our projects who are 14, 15, 16 years old as well. And for the very same reason, because it's going, they will ate what's called age out before their parents would get approval. So the parents want the kids to have the benefit of it. And at that age, being minors, they're able to execute the documents? And make the investment? I mean, how do you get around that? That's a very good question. We do it under um, UTMA, Uniform Transfer to Minors Act, and have the parents gift them the money through the UTMA, and then the custodian under UTMA executes the documents on behalf of the child. So I think so far we have a very in-depth, I was going to say fundamental, but I don't think fundamental is the right word. (laughs) We have a very in-depth overview of the EB-5 program and all its different uses and the incentives for the different parties. 
How about walking me through and our listeners through a project? And this is when we started it. This is what it was. This is what we did. We could have went the normal route for the capital stack, but we decided to do EB-5. And, you know, this was the value of the project. This is how long it took. This is how much we raised here. Uh, you know, right to the end where the project is completed, you're recapitalizing with a refinance. What's the distribution of money at that point? That would really be great to hear about. I can walk you through a project that we're currently doing. It's a skilled nursing facility that Greystone's developing in Apopka, Florida. This is an example of a smaller raise that we're doing in response to the change in the market. It's our own regional center in Florida. So to Min's point, it keeps our costs down in that we don't have to engage a third-party regional center to incur a lot of the costs. The project is a, it's a skilled nursing facility, which Greystone owns and operates 27 skilled nursing facilities in Florida currently. And this is one that we're building from the ground up. Just in case people aren't familiar with skilled nursing, it's kind of what you think of as a nursing home. It's a place where people go after they've had a long hospital stay and need additional rehab, need some more time to get better, aren't quite ready to get home, but aren't quite sick enough to stay in the hospital, which, as we all know, can be quite expensive. And then it's also where people might go because they need a lot of extra care. We started building this facility in April. That's when we went into the ground. The project itself is a $37 million project, and we have a senior loan on it of $29 million, which is 80% of the capital stack. Now, that's a little bit higher than you typically see for construction. Typically, for construction, you're going to see something more along the 50%, 60%. But then you're a graystone. That's exactly right. You took the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. We're able to get 80%, one, because it's a very, very strong asset class, and two, because of our experience in building these types of facilities and our creditworthiness down in Florida. So our EB-5 on this raise is actually pretty small. It's $3.5 million, seven investors. And then we have equity in it of about $3.9 million, which is about 10.5% of the capital stack. The EB-5 is about 9.5% of the capital stack. Now, as we've been talking, one of the things that investors really want to make sure is that a project is going to be built. And we always like to make sure that our investors are very comfortable because this is a huge decision, if you think about it, for every investor. And as we talked about, they're doing it for their family. $500,000, no matter how you look at it, is a lot of money. So you're trying to get your green card, that's your ultimate goal, but you want to make sure that once you get your green card, once you come here to the United States, that you're going to get your $500,000 back. So you want to invest with someone that you think can get the project accomplished and then can get it refinanced or sold. And they show you that underwriting. They show you how they're going to get your money back. And we always show two scenarios, a refinance as well as a sale. When the investor gets their $500,000 back, do they get any profit, any interest? How does that work? For this particular project, we were paying 2% per annum. So the investors would have that paid each year, the 2%. So that's paid ongoing. That was paid current. It wasn't accrued and paid at the end. Every project has different structures. Some people you know, pay half a point. Some people accrue it till the end. This is not equity. This is done as a loan. You don't get a part of the upside of the project. And when you say it's done as a loan, then is it secured by the real estate? It's a mezzanine loan. So it's secured by a pledge of membership interest in the owner of the real estate. So if for some reason the project went bust and was foreclosed on by the senior lender and the senior lender took the property back and then... If they wanted to, depending on how much they got when they sold it, they would be able to pay these investors back or they wouldn't do that? Well, that depends upon how much money they got at the end. If they foreclosed on it and they didn't allow the mezzanine lender to exercise its rights to take over the ownership, you know, in our documents, we always have with the senior lender, we always have rights to cure the default of the developer of the EB-5 borrower. So if they had defaulted on the senior, we would go to the senior lender. We would say to them, hey, we have the ability to complete this project. Will you let us take over the developer and we'll pay you? If we weren't going to pay the senior and bring the, the defaulted loan current, they would have really no incentive to do that. But to Min's point, in this one, in our project, we do have a repayment guarantee. So worst case scenario, and I hate to talk about worst case scenario because 
we like to think that we underwrite our projects properly. As I mentioned, we're lenders. Last year, we lent over $10.5 billion. We're good underwriters. We understand what makes a good loan and, and how things are going to be repaid. But worst case scenario, everything goes wrong. We do have a repayment guarantee from a company with over $2 billion in assets. In this case, there were seven investors. Do they have the right to foreclose? No, they are either limited partners or members. The new commercial entity, that's the fund that's formed to take the money in. It can be formed as an LLC, in which case the foreign investors are members, or it can be formed as a limited partnership, in which case they're limited partners. Very rarely do they have the ability to complete the foreclosure, because in each case, there's either a managing member that is affiliated with the regional center, typically, or a general partner. But in each case, too, that managing member and that general partner has a fiduciary duty to those investors to make sure that they're doing the right thing and taking the right actions. So again, I'm sure Min tells all her clients this, you want to make sure you know who that general partner is or who that managing member is, and can they be trusted? What's the intended timeline on a project like this to completion? Construction on the Apopka facility is going to take about two years. And then it will be stabilized. And then we'll probably, it's our plan to refinance it through HUD. And then the loan has a five-year maturity. So at the end of five years, the loan can be paid back to the NCE. So the NCE can then distribute to the investors. Or there's two one-year extensions on the part of the developer that the developer can exercise. But going back to what I said before about money needing to be at risk, For investors that are in countries that have retrogression, they cannot get their money back until they've gone through what's called their sustainment period. They've received their conditional green card. Two years have gone by. In China right now, that could mean the money needs to be out and invested for 18 years. Are they still getting the 2% a year? When the money gets paid back to the NCE, the money will then need to be put into another at-risk investment. It cannot just sit in a bank account. USCIS has come out with rules on redeployment, but I think Min will agree with me and anybody in the industry with agree with me, they're not exactly clear. Everyone's working on trying to clarify them and we're moving forward with what we as the industry feel is best practices. Greystone would take that money, it would reinvest it, we would try to meet the interest rate and continue to pay the investors. And what does NCE stand for? New commercial enterprise. All right, new commercial enterprise. So on this project, yeah, the one thing I want to mention is we did get a bridge loan to make sure all the money was there. So EB-5, so to Min's point earlier, our projects are pretty simple. We have the senior loan at about 80%. We have the equity about 10.5%. We have the EB-5, but until the EB-5 is fully raised, which we hope to have it done in the next month or two, we have a bridge loan. So the money's all there, the project has started, everything can move forward, and the investors don't have to worry that the jobs won't be created or the project will stall. That goes back to the point that you made before, Allison, which is that your projects are going forward whether you get the EB-5 money or not. That's right. Right. All right, great. And I'm sorry to bring up all those questions about the fault and going bust and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're very good questions. I mean, I like it. Min, I'm sure you like it. The investors are becoming smarter and smarter in the questions that they ask. And the people used to say about EB-5 when I got into it in 2015 that it was the wild, wild west. There were very few rules and, and people were not that educated. But now we're seeing more sophisticated investors. And I like it because I feel like we have a strong product. And men, I bet you like it because you don't have to educate your investors. I'm fixing a lot of problems that happened before. I mean, one of the cases we're dealing with right now, it's a $100 million raise and the project's not being completed and you have all these investors now basically at their permanent green card stage and they're really just terrified. So what happens in a case like that? Well, it's terrible. They've lived here now for, let's say, five to seven years. They have kids here and now they are in jeopardy of being deported because the developer has failed to complete the project. And because initially a lot of the EB-5 projects were being recommended by either migration agents or friends, there wasn't a lot of analysis of the project. And it's interesting for this project I'm referring to, there are lots of very smart people in this project. They're all college educated. They came here 
It's just that at the time they invested in about 2012, they didn't really do a lot of research about the project. So now we're going back and the investor had three options. If project goes bad, they're being denied their permanent green car, they can do what's called motion to reopen. They can go to immigration judge at their removal proceeding. It's when they're being asked to be deported. The third option is in federal court where they can bring the suit in federal court to ask the judge to reconsider all the facts of the case and grant the green car. So at that stage, these investors are in a bad situation. And they're investing more money in all this court time. Very expensive. Absolutely. In addition, it appears they're going to lose their initial investment of $500,000. And who has the money? Who has the $100 million? Well, at this point, that property is under receivership. And he's trying to figure out where the money is. Who's he? Well, the receiver. So now the property is is under the court order. It's been taken over. And it's very challenging for the investor because, like Allison mentioned earlier, if it's formed as a limited partner or a member, they don't have a lot of recourse. Even if the property is sold, the EB-5 investors are considered a creditor, so they may never get paid back because the reality of this today is even if they sell the full project, it's not even going to meet what they owe to the secure creditor. So these EP5 investors are really out of luck. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about that back when projects were first being done, people would just send their money to a developer or send their money to a regional center because they were desperate to have these green cards for their children to come to school here. As EB-5 evolved and became a little bit more sophisticated, money goes into escrow. Whenever we have an investor now send money, we make sure that their application's complete, that we work with an immigration council that can have some sense of comfort that the application will be approved, and then they wire their money into escrow, and then from escrow it goes into the projects. That's not required under the statutes, but that's really best practices that unfortunately wasn't exercised years ago, so a lot of money did in fact get lost. So the moral of the story is that you really have to do your due diligence. Absolutely. And that's something that I advise all of my clients that even though a project may be referred to by a friend or a migration agent, it's essential that they find their advisor, financial advisor to take a look at the project and see if it makes sense into the investment portfolio. Despite the fact that they don't necessarily get a high rate of return, it's still investing half a million dollars. Um, And that's still a lot of money for a long time. Even if you are investing from a country that is not in the retrogression, you're still talking about five to seven years process where your money is at risk. So therefore, it's a very serious investment that I believe all investors should take notice and be cautious. After an investor gets involved in a project, are there compliance requirements? for the developer to report on a periodic basis to the investor what's happening? There's no legal requirement because these EB-5 investors are considered passive investors. They're not actively involved in the project. So typically, the kind of reporting that is done for investor is done on more the regional center level or whatever process in place. So some regional center developer will always have status of the construction, how it's made the construction timeline. They'll have videos of how much construction has been done. But there is no requirement under the law to say that the developer or the regional center must provide reporting to the investor. But I think most investors obviously can inquire, but there's no requirement under the law for, for anyone to do reporting to the investors. Fortunately, one of the changes that they're looking to make in EB-5 and every time the legislation, the short-term extension expires, there's talk about putting in integrity measures. So USCIS can come and audit regional centers. Right now, there's not that much of it going on, but they're slowly beginning to do it. To Min's point on our project on 126th Street, we had a 24-7 camera. So investors could sign on at any point and see what's happening at the project. We also tell investors that we'll send out quarterly updates, showing photographs, showing how much money's been used, showing how many jobs have been created, where we are, are we on track, are we not on track. Believe it or not, we have a lot of investors who come here and then want tours of the projects. So we always try to accommodate those requests as well. Allison, you mentioned you had 17 regional centers around the country. Um, We have actually four regional centers that cover 17 states. 
Okay, great. I'm glad I clarified that. Four regional centers that cover 17 states. Right, right. So we, you know, we've talked a lot about the developer. We've talked a lot about the project. We've talked a lot about the investor. You had mentioned before that a developer could do this on their own, but at some point they'd want to create a regional center. So what what is the regional center part in this whole process? So the regional center came into the legislation in 1993 when it was revised in order to, you know, believe it or not, to make the process simpler. Before that, it had to be a direct investment into a business and you had to show that you were creating 10 jobs, 10 people working behind the counter at McDonald's. As Min mentioned, a lot of franchises used EB-5 money. So a regional center is an entity or an enterprise that's designated by USCIS to be a regional center, that it's going to bring economic benefit to a certain area of the country in certain types of asset classes. And you have to put together a business plan and you have to show USCIS how you're going to do that. You have to put together either a real project that you want to begin raising money for or example projects that say, if you designate me as a regional center, I'm going to raise money by how I'm going to raise the money, what countries I'm going to raise the money, what benefits I'm going to bring to the region. I'm going to build projects that are health facilities or multifamily facilities, so I'll bring housing. And each of these projects is going to cost me X number of dollars, which will create X number of jobs. So that was part of the 1993, and it allowed investors to really pool their money with other investors and then put them into larger projects and then get the benefit, as I mentioned earlier, of indirect and induced jobs. So not necessarily the direct jobs of the people working, but an indirect job. If someone's pouring the concrete on my construction site, somebody had to make the concrete, somebody had to transport the concrete. Those are the indirect jobs. And through a construction project, through a regional center, I get the benefit of those jobs. So the regional center actually creates a pool as opposed to a single project. So it's the difference between a single asset vehicle and a multi-asset vehicle. Right. And they can have more than one project going on at once. And, you know, just to be very clear, they're designated as regional centers by USCIS, but they're not approved by USCIS. USCIS never says, yes, Greystone's approved. They're going to do a great job. All they say is they have been designated based upon the business plan they submitted to us. Right. So just because an investor is investing through a regional center doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, it's a good project. Right. It doesn't mean it's an approved project. That's right. So I would imagine that there is global competition. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually um, a growing issue right now because as the lines get longer and we talk about you know, increasing the costs here in the U.S. And there's uncertainty because, as I mentioned earlier, right now we're just existing on these extensions, 14 of them. Investors are starting to look to other countries. For instance, Portugal is the most popular country right now in China where people are beginning to look. That takes an investment of about 550000 U.S. dollars. And the requirement there is that you invest in real estate and you go for two weeks every two years. And that will get the investor a visa that allows them to travel anywhere within the EU. After five years of having that money invested, they then get citizenship, which allows them to live, um, work, and go to school in Portugal or anywhere in the EU. So that's a very, very popular program that we're beginning to lose Chinese investors to. Another very popular program is Greece. Greece is actually the lowest cost, and who wouldn't want to go to Greece? Um, It's about 340,000 US dollars. You invest in real estate, and then it takes 40 days after you invest in real estate there to get a five-year residency visa, which allows you, again, to travel anywhere in the EU. And after seven years of residency there, you then get citizenship, which allows you to live, work, or go to school anywhere in the EU. And then finally, Cyprus is the quickest. It's a bit more expensive. It costs about two and a half million U.S. dollars. But within six months, you're able to get citizenship there if you make a real estate investment. Once you get citizenship, not to keep repeating myself, but you can live, work, and travel anywhere in the EU. And then after five years of investing in real estate in Cyprus, you can reduce that to 550000 So I think it's important to note, even though Cyprus is you know, $2.5 million, that's quite a lot of money, most people who are investing in EB-5 are not 
super wealthy people. These are people who have put together their life savings, some of them borrowed from relatives, mortgaged their homes, all so that they can bring their children or have their children come and live and study in the United States. So I think that's a big misconception about EB-5, that these are all super wealthy people. I would agree with Alan's saying that the intent of the EB-5 program, I think, is very honorable and it's a great program. In today's market, the bad players are, most of them are out of the market and the current project that's in the market today for EB-5 are relatively good. But at the same time, the competition for these investors are very fierce. So as a result, I think Allison mentioned that Greystone is taking a little change in the business plan with respect to doing smaller EP5 raises so that it's one, safer for the investor, but two, it allows them to finish a project and get the necessary EP5 funding and then closing the uh, project out. I'd just like to add one other thing about these investors because Min and I have both met a lot of these investors and a lot of people have put down EB-5 in many ways. They, they worry that it's terrorist money coming to the United States or laundered money coming to the United States. But USCIS vets this money very, very carefully. The typical stack of documentation on this money submitted to USCIS is probably about eight inches thick. And when you tell USCIS where the money's coming from, you can't just say, oh, I mortgaged my home. USCIS is going to say, that's great. You got a loan on your home. Where'd you get the money for to buy the house? And they're going to want to see your tax returns. And they're going to want to see if somebody gifted you that money, where they got that gift. So this money and these uh, citizens coming to the United States, these foreign investors are all very well vetted. And USCIS takes that very seriously. That's correct, Allison. Source of funds for EB-5 is very intense. Lots of the investors sometimes came and get through the process because we asked for so much documentation. Source of funds for maybe five years. Now it's going back almost 20 years. They want to know where you got the initial money, whether to buy the house, to start a business. So we document everything. And so what we advise our clients is that we take in what they provide and we ask for more information. If the investors say, this is all I have, then basically we would basically submit and hope for the best because USCIS does do a very, very thorough job in terms of figuring out where the money's coming from. So it's not like the investor can say, I have $500,000. Here it is. Give me an EB-5 visa. It's not that easy at all. Min, Allison, that's all we have time for today. That was exceptional. Thank you so much. I know the listeners got a lot out of that. I got a lot out of that. And I'm sure that some of what they heard, they may have additional questions about. Would it be okay if they reached out to either one of you? And if so, how would they reach out? Sure, I'm happy to have people reach out. The best way to contact me would be through my um, email, allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N dot Berman, B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N, at Graco, G-R-E-Y-C-O dot com. And I'm happy to answer your questions at any time. Great, thanks. And my email address is M-C-H-A-N at eb5dreamteam.com. And if you want to call instead, my number is 212-745-1388. Thanks for being here, Min. Thanks for being here, Allison. Thank you, Bill, for having us on your podcast. I always enjoy speaking about EB5 and especially with Allison. Thank you, Bill. It was really great. And Min, it's always great to spend time with you. The following is the follow-up call that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I had this call with Allison Berman from Greystone, and it reviews the major changes to the final rules of the EB-5 program. Again, you'll also find these in the show notes. Allison, what are those changes that just took place? When are they going to be announced? And when are they going to be effective? Yeah, Bill. So USCIS just announced that they're going to publish the final rules on July 24th and that they're going to make a number of significant changes to the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Program. This is actually going to be the first significant revisions to the program's regulations since 1993 when they came out with the Regional Center Program. And the final rules will become effective on November 21. The main changes being that they're going to raise the minimum investment amounts from 500000 to 900000 if a project is in a TEA, Targeted Employment Area, and for projects that are not in TEAs, it's going to be raised from a million 
to $1.8 million. Obviously, that's a significant change in the investment amount. They're also going to change the way that they designate TEAs. Previously, there was gerrymandering that was permitted that could be more of a snaking, whereas each census tract had to touch the next census tract, but it didn't have to touch the census tract where the project was located. So that was really more of a snaking. Now the requirement is going to be a donut where each census tract that is being averaged with the site census tract is going to have to touch the site itself. So that's going to be a major change as well. Another of the changes is going to be that the Department of Homeland Security itself is going to be responsible for managing these TEAs, whereas in the past, the state has had that responsibility. And then the final significant change, which is actually a good change for the investors, is that if investors file more than one I-526 petition, they're going to be able to retain their priority date under certain circumstances. The reason, Bill, that that's important for investors is because, as we talked about the last time we spoke, is there are a lot of delays in certain processing times and because of retrogression for investors from certain parts of the country. In that time, sometimes regional centers go out of business, projects go bad. So if the investor files a new petition and they previously correctly filed the petition that was approved, they'll be able to main that original priority date. So that, in fact, is a very good change for the investors. What about the uh, number of global visas? I believe that was set at 10,000 previously. Is that still the same? Yes, that's still the same. The USCIS regulations never talked about increasing the number of visas, and these regulations that are being published will not change the 10,000 visa limit. Derivatives will still continue to be counted against that 10,000 limit. We're going to see a rush from certain markets for people who are going to try to get their investments in under the old rules, under the 500000 and $1 million investment rates. But I don't think we're going to see a rush from the Chinese market because they want to see more visas because they would like their retrogression line shortened so they're not waiting 16 and a half years. I suspect that we'll see more of a rush from India, Taiwan, Brazil, and those markets for people to rush to get in before the investment limits go up. And that's going to be again on November? November 21. So now July 23rd, July, August, September, October, November, four months. That's right. Thank you so much for taking the time to do an additional recording, an expanded version of what we originally talked about so that all the listeners have the correct information, Allison. Thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Yeah, we want to make sure everybody knows the new rules and knows and has the latest information. There you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please, share our show with others. Just choose Share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. Of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me via the website at BillWeidner.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. 